Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and I am particularly excited about my guest co-host this week. She is my former partner in crime turned a long-distance bestie. I also know that she is a lover of wine and also snacks, too. My guest co-host this week is Taylor Baker. Hello, Taylor. So good to see you. Hi, Liam. I'm so excited. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We've been talking about this for so long. I'm so excited. It's finally here. Well, Taylor and I first met at a news station in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was her bestie reporter, and she was my bestie photographer. And now she's a flight attendant for American Airlines and is based out of Dallas, Texas. But we had, like, so many long nights and, like, just in the absolute trenches together with such long days chasing down stories and people and, ugh. I just miss you so much. But, you know, we would often get through those long days gossiping and chit-chatting in the car and, yes, even eating some, like, watermelon Sour Patch Kids. So, obviously, <laughs> Taylor, like, I did have to go pick some up before Stop. this episode. So, that's what <laughs> that's I'll be snacking incredible. on if you hear that in the background. So, that's no, what we're doing, the, so. that is definitely very nostalgic for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would so- carry around a family size. <laughs> I was family size, and like I would always, like I would always be like, "Hey, like you know, do you have any? What's going on this week?" A little something to take the edge off. Oh, a little something to take the edge off, and I would always steal like all of Taylor's, all of them. So you know, I do owe you like at least like six bags probably at this point. So. (laughs) So let's get to, because I know you love snacks. I love, know you love watermelon sour patch kids, but you also love wine. And so I'm yes. so excited to be drinking wine with you, even though we're like several hundred miles apart. So let's get to that part. So this week we are drinking Chloe's Cabernet Sauvignon. It's from San Lucas, California. The vineyard says it's a bold, sophisticated wine with luscious flavors of black cherry, ripe plum, and dark chocolate and notes of roasted coffee and cinnamon bark. And I do have to say the sophisticated part, like I really get that from the label because it's like a little, if you're not familiar with the yeah. bottle, like it's a little bow, like right in the middle and like go look us up on Instagram because I always post um, all of our bottles of the week, like right before the episode drops a couple days before. Um, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Like sophisticated, like to a T. For sure. It, yeah. It's really such like a cool little logo. I love it. Yeah. So oh, let's do yes, it. Go for it. I will too. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And I also have to say, because we bonded over our love for red wine, too. So are you like, okay, so I do have to guess, because I feel like I just have to, like, are you, like, you love Cabernet, right? Like, you're... That's my stuff. Like, that's your... Okay. This is one of the besties. I know. Everywhere I go, I get a Cabernet. I never... Or a red blend. Sometimes a red blend. Fair. Mostly Cabernet. All right. Well, cheers to you, Taylor. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Also, I think we're drinking out of the same glass, too, or something, like, really similar. Oh, that's good. Yeah, this is really good. Very bold. I very, love very bold. Definitely jumps down your throat. And, mm-hmm. like, also one of those, like, wines, because I feel like, because, like, you're in Texas, like, and I often have a hardest time ever, like, finding, like, wines that you can find in, like, multiple different locations. And so yes. I will say this is one of those wines that you, that are, that's really pretty widely available. Um, so pretty much wherever you're listening to this right now, you're going to be able to find this. Um, but it is, if you like a bold, bold red, like, this is yes. it for sure. It and fills dry. the mouth for sure. Yeah. Mm. It's not too acidic, though. No, not at all. And I'm also, so I'm trying to pick out those flavors, like definitely dark, um, dark chocolate, definitely black Mm -hmm. cherry. And I also, now I think about it, I definitely got some roasted coffee in there too. Yeah. It's a little oaky. Like, and I love that. That's my favorite. 
Is oh yeah, I can... I'm not like a huge fan of oak. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's not my. <laughs> those are, I mean, not that it, like. Listen, I'll never turn out a glass of wine. Uh, but those are not <laughs> like just in terms of like my favorite flavors. I don't love seeing. Like I don't know, I just don't. I just don't love. I don't know. There's something about it. I don't know what it is. I think I just don't like like it. the like that like um like toasty kind of flavor. Like oh. that's not really kind of my vibe. Like I, I really that. like like I love bold dry wines, but I also love a lot of fruit flavors more so. Gotcha. In yeah. there, so I, that's kind I'm of always so open what I to. Toward. I'm open to anything, but I typically love a good bold red wine. Yeah, that's where we're best. And this is perfect. That's why we it. get along. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Taylor, I do have to, you know, go on only because this story that I'm about to tell you about is absolutely insane. There's so much to talk about here. And so I like, let's just get to that because I yes. know we're going to have a lot to talk about. Awesome. Let's do it. So, Taylor, this week I want to tell you a story that truly puts the head-scratching and head-scratching true crime stories. An ambitious young college student in upstate New York gets on the bus at one stop, but there is no evidence that she ever got off at the other. And an infamous serial killer may be at play here. This week, Taylor, I want to tell you the story of Suzanne Lyle and the final exam. Every good story starts from the beginning, so let's start there, right? Suzanne Lyle was born on April 6, 1978 in Saratoga, New York, but Suzanne would end up growing up in Boston Spa, New York. It's just about an hour north of the state capital of Albany. Suzanne grew up the youngest of three kids, and her parents, Mary and Doug, said that Suzanne was so kind, loving, and intelligent. She was creative and loved to write, and was always writing poems and different stories, and often on scraps of paper or, you know, napkins when it kind of I picture that like whenever that mm-hmm. like the idea would kind of come to her, right? In 1996, Suzanne started becoming really interested in computers. And this was right around when computers started becoming like really popular in homes. Suzanne spent a lot of t- her time in online chat rooms. And that's where she made a lot of friends and connections. At one point, Suzanne even told her mother that one of the groups that she was in invited her to a computer club that would meet once a month. Mary was a little hesitant at first, understandably so, and a little worried about her daughter meeting with people that she met online. Now, even in 2023, this kind of reaction can obviously be easily understood, but you have to take yourself back to 1996 at this point, and this thing called the internet was so scary, and I think you can imagine how Suzanne's muddling on the internet made her mother really feel. Yeah, that had to be kind of intimidating to go I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, you know, because I like if you're just like thinking about this like strange thing, you're yeah. like, what the heck's going on? Especially like, like, you know, um, like mothers of that generation, right? Like you're, you know, several years like like my mom, you know, like, you know, kind of had an idea of what the Internet was when like we started using it and that kind of thing. Right. But like when you're kid has to teach you what it is like ooh, like yeah so that is obviously giving all of the like you know full body chills for sure 
Yes. So right. Suzanne was pretty shy, and being able to connect with people on online was this social outlet for Suzanne. And Suzanne's parents, I think, probably saw the effect that this was having on her and eventually agreed to let her attend this meeting. And her dad even went with her to the first one um, just to see over things, make sure everything was legit. In 1996, Suzanne graduated high school and went on to, to the State University of New York at Oneonta, or SUNY Oneonta, as we New Yorkers call it, to study computer science. That's what she wanted to major in. But she only went there for a year before she transferred to SUNY Albany. Not only did she want to transfer because she didn't feel like she was being challenged enough, but she also wanted to be closer to her boyfriend, Richard. By her sophomore year, Suzanne was really excelling in school. She was, however, constantly expressing concerns about her grades and about money, and she ended up working part-time at two jobs by March of 1998 to get through school. On March 1st, Suzanne called her mom to wish her a happy birthday and said that she was really sorry that she wasn't home to celebrate with her, but she told her that she needed to focus on midterms that were coming up the next day. So, obviously, mom agreed and, you know, understood. Suzanne also expressed some concerns about money and said, that she was really pressed for cash and desperately waiting for her next paycheck. And her mom offered to lend her some money, but Suzanne would decline. And that night, Suzanne expressed some similar concerns to her boss at her video game store job. She said that she was really worried about a test, and pretty much everyone agreed that this was not unusual of Suzanne. Like, she was always really hard on herself about her grades and about school. So I just think that, you know, tells you a lot about Suzanne. Right, yeah. So she's very... Yeah, driven and yeah, school focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, and I think that says, like, again, just like teeing up her personality here, like, this is a very right. cautious young woman, right? Like, right. 19, you know, very focused on school, shy, you know, really keeps to mm-hmm. herself, that kind of thing. And so, like, again, like, it's just building up, kind of giving you a really good idea of who Suzanne was at this exactly. point. So the next day, Suzanne takes those midterms and finishes her classes around four before she takes the bus to her job at the video game store at the Crossgates Mall, which is just about a four-minute bus ride away from where her dorm is. Suzanne gets to work, and her boss later tells police that he asked her how the exam went, to which Suzanne just says, okay, but like maybe a little demurred, right? Suzanne ended up staying until closing that night, and a security guard at the mall confirmed to police that he saw Suzanne and a coworker leaving the mall through the employee entrance at 9.20. Suzanne took the bus back to her dorm room that night, and the bus driver says he knew Suzanne got on the bus, but isn't sure if she got off at that stop. Now, the driver says he knows for sure Suzanne was not on the bus when he finished his route, and he believes that Suzanne got off of the bus around 9.45. That's at least when, you know, he stopped at that stop that she would have gotten off on. The bus stop is the one that's closest to Suzanne's dorm, just about 900 feet from the entrance. Now, I go through this with such a detail, Taylor, because it's obviously important, right? I wouldn't be telling you about it if it wasn't, because this is the last time that Suzanne has ever been seen. That's right. Suzanne gets on this bus. Maybe she gets off. But even if she did, she never makes it the 900 feet to her dorm room because her roommates say that she never came home that night. They never heard the door open or the usual jingling of her keys. Oh, my goodness. What could have happened to her? Well, we're about to get into that, Taylor. (laughs) Yes, I need to know. This is only the beginning of Mm -mm. this bizarre mystery, Taylor. And so all I can say as we move forward is I hope you have a much bigger glass.
It's believed that Suzanne did indeed get off of the bus near her dorm at 9.45 on the evening of March 2nd, 1998. She was last seen wearing a long black trench coat, a black shirt, blue jeans, and was possibly carrying a book bag or a tote bag. And routine is really important in any case, but especially in cases like Suzanne's, because apparently Suzanne had a habit of calling or emailing her boyfriend Richard as soon as she got back to her room, and they would usually chat online for a bit and debrief about their days before she went to bed. But her boyfriend says, he never got that call or email that night, and that really worried him. So the next morning, Richard calls Suzanne's parents to tell them that he hadn't heard from Suzanne the night before or even this morning, and that he was really worried about her and was wondering if they had heard from her. Now, it's important to note here that Suzanne's parents were cautiously optimistic about Richard. They've met him a couple of times at this point, and he seemed like a nice guy, right? But most of their relationship was spent online. And I even saw some sources that suggested that they may have even met in one of those online chat rooms. And we know that Suzanne's parents were really wary of their daughter's time spent on the computer. So easy to believe that they are side-eyeing Richard big time at this point in their relationship, right? Absolutely. I would be doing the same thing. But like, even from, like, not even from like a missing person perspective, like even just from like a relationship perspective, like Mm -hmm. if you're not really so keen on your daughter spending so much time on the internet, like I could really see how, you know, this guy kind of being around, you know, is kind of, you know, a little concerning, you know, just in just in a general sense, like, it's just kind of, like, doesn't really feel right. And so, like, that that's kind of more so the, f- the vibe I'm getting here at this point. Yeah, do we know if they're the same age or if he's an older guy or... They're similar in age. I know that he went to school, like, he didn't go to SUNY Albany, but he went to school nearby. Okay. And so they're like, she, he's like a college age. So he's within, you know, within a few years of, um, of Suzanne at best. Hmm, very suspicious. <laughs> so Suzanne's parents call campus security, who ended up doing a welfare check on Suzanne's dorm room, and as expected, Suzanne was nowhere to be found. But it didn't really look off at all. Like, her dorm room was practically untouched. There was no sign of a struggle at all, and it looked like she left with every intention of returning, like, as soon as possible. Everything was exactly as any normal person would expect it to be. Campus security called Suzanne's parents back and told them this, and even said that this kind of thing happens all the time for kids Suzanne's age and at the school. They would get really stressed, need time away from the world, and just get away for a day or two. They had nothing to worry about at this point. But Mary and Doug were not buying that for one second. This was not like Suzanne at all to just disconnect from everyone she knew and loved, and definitely not in the middle of midterms at school. Wow. Yeah, that's very out of character for her, it seems. Well, yeah, and, like, character, you know, patterns, like, are so important in investigations, right? right? Because if somebody is off, like, I always say, you know, like, Frank, like, I know my mom always picks up the phone, like, always calls me mm-hmm. back, like, you know, with it, or at least calls me back within an hour, and so I know if my mom doesn't call me back within an hour, like, I'm on the phone with the police. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I mean, like, that's, like, a reasonable, but, like, seriously, though, like, that's even, like, a reasonable, you know, um, you know, like, because people's behavior, people's, you know, time, you know, like, how people, you know, typically respond to certain things like are so important in investigations to know if something's just doesn't feel right mm-hmm. and so yeah so i think it's really important to know that like you know they like mary and doug who know suzanne probably better than anybody else mm-hmm. right know that she wouldn't just take off certainly not in the middle of school like school meant everything to her yes. and so like yeah so like it's it's really important for for them to to for everyone to understand i guess that they that they know that this was not that this was not something that she would normally do right. and please should understand that as well absolutely And, like, a parent's intuition is always right, right? So, 
Doug immediately gets in his car to drive the 45 minutes to SUNY Albany to check on Suzanne and look for her himself, if no one else seems interested in doing that. When Doug gets to his daughter's dorm room, he sees what campus security sees, a totally undisturbed and totally normal college dorm room, but he sees no evidence that she intended to be gone for more than a few hours. Things she used every single day were still in Suzanne's room exactly as he would expect them to be and exactly where she would expect them to be when she returned home from work. Her computer was still there. I think it was even still on, ready for use. Her glasses were in the room and she needed glasses. Like apparently she had really bad eyesight. Like how do you going to go anywhere without without your glasses? And her hair dryer was still on the bed, probably exactly where she left it when she finished getting ready for work that day. That's so odd because I have really bad eyesight. I can't imagine like leaving that behind for that long. Mm-hmm. So that's really odd. Was there like a note or something? No, so there was not a note, actually, Taylor. There was no note at all, which again, if she just needs some time away in a world before texting or finds my friends app, wouldn't you leave a note or something Mm. saying, hey, you know, I just needed some time by myself, like, no need to worry, everything's fine, like, literally anything at all? Yeah, and to leave your glasses as well, like, I would die without my eyesight. (laughs) Like, without my eyes, right? Well, and, like, again, just, like, noting to the point where, like, if if the excuse here is, like, oh, she must have just gone off for a day or two, like, you don't leave leave your glasses. Like, if she wears contacts, of course, you know, okay. But, like, you you go to bed, like, you take your contacts out, like, you need those glasses to be able to see, especially with someone with really bad eyesight. And so that doesn't make any sort of sense to me uh, on its face. It doesn't. Yeah, really odd. And, you know, at this point, it has been a full 24 hours plus waiting for Suzanne to make herself seen or known or something. And so her parents call back to campus security on March 4th to say, hey, like, my daughter is still missing. Can you do something, anything? And so campus security does do another welfare check on her dorm room, and this time they even go to her classes to look for her, but she wasn't there either. So at this point, they officially take down a missing persons report for Suzanne and get state police involved who end up leading this investigation. Police ask around to Suzanne's friends, classmates, roommates, etc. to ask about Suzanne, and they all pretty much say the same thing. Suzanne pretty much kept to herself, had a small group of friends, and wasn't really much of a partier, and she didn't drink or do drugs or that anyone was aware of anyways. And so the idea of her being missing was so odd, because as far as they knew, Suzanne would never really put herself in a position for her to be in any sort of danger whatsoever. Right. That's, yeah, it's so weird for her. Um, I'm definitely going to need some wine. (laughs) (laughs) after hearing that come on now i'm tossing it down i'm tossing it down because like i I always say i'm gonna be able to solve this case by the end of this whole thing if i can just drink this bottle of wine did they even reach out to richard her boyfriend or anything oh yeah totally so they ask him questions but don't really get anything out of left field out of richard but eventually they do But it takes a pair of really persistent investigators to shake something up and those investigators their names are mom and dad Hi, Crime Over Wine listeners. I'm Rachel. And I'm Heather. Now we know how much you love Liam's expert research and professionalism. Over at the Wine Time Podcast, you'll get the same expert research, but definitely a lot less professionalism. We cover all things mom, including mom crimes. Here's a quick clip. He did not make a mistake. This is routine. This is who he is. This is something that is going to continue. And you either take charge and you fix it, get out of it, whatever it may be, or you choose to live through it. And if you choose to live through it, like this is a mom cast, whatever, if you choose to live through it, that's on you. Do not put your children in that position. They do not deserve that. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Mary and Doug don't really feel like the investigation is getting anywhere at this point. And they're, again, remember, police waited like almost two full days before even reporting her as missing. So at this point, they have to imagine that every single second is critical to finding their daughter. So they start doing, the, doing their own investigation, calling friends and classmates and asking around, hanging up flyers and calling about Suzanne's bank records even. Mary calls Suzanne's bank, which tells her something really off, in her opinion. The bank tells Mary that the day Suzanne went missing, she had made two separate withdrawals, both for just $20. That's weird. What in the world? Just $20? Yeah. Like, I mean, if she's going somewhere, yeah. she's going to take out more than that. So why $20? Oh. Or 40 I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. But still, like, and it's still weird to do it two separate times, right? Because again, like you said, like, if the if the point here is that she's going somewhere, like, you're going to mm. take out one lump sum, it's going to be more than $40. Like, that's, I mean, these days, back in the day, like, maybe that'll get you, like, you know like a good tank of gas, oh, like true. probably a couple tanks of gas. But like today, you know, I'm thinking like, that's not going to get you very far, you know? And <laughs> that so it gets me like a drink at the coffee shop. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But still like, you know, point being is that like, if she, if she expected to be gone for a prolonged period of time, like 20, like $40 is not going to cut it. And also right. too, like, again, like I said, like why do it twice? Was it, do we know if it was at the same location? So no, it was at two, it was, at, it was at two different, two completely different locations, um, mm. two different times, like a whole, like the whole thing, like, and, but Again, all in the day that she went missing before she went to work. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Tell me more, Liam. So Mary tells police that this behavior is actually fairly common for Suzanne, actually. Typically, if she needs some cash, she only makes withdrawals of $20 at a time. But she says it still doesn't feel right to her, like in her gut, because she had just been saying that she was really worried about money. And the bank says before she made those withdrawals, she only had $120 in her bank account. So she's, you know, taking out a third of this. So why would she just make two different withdrawals on the same day? It just didn't feel right. But what makes it even weirder is that then the bank says, oh, there was actually another $20 withdrawal made on the afternoon of March 3rd, the day after Suzanne went missing. Oh, my. So this girl's obviously, I don't know. She may not. Okay. She may not still be alive on the 3rd. But, like, someone has her card. Or she's somewhere. Like, someone's doing something and taking out her money. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's weird because, you know, this, you know, so this leads to an obvious assumption, right? Like, police say that somebody must have stolen Suzanne's card and they probably had something to do with her disappearance, right? But whoever mm -hmm. did this probably knew more about Suzanne than met the eye because whoever took Suzanne's card had to know about her habit to take out only $20 at a time, right? Because that mm -hmm. would set off the least amount of alarm bells if, you know, the behavior is still following through. But on top of that, the bank tells Suzanne's parents that the person who took out the money entered in her pin correctly on the very first try. Okay. Now it's making me think that she's running away. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, that's, you know? I mean, that's a very common, you know, that, I mean, that's like a reasonable expectation, right? Because who yeah. else, like, you know, nobody knows my pin. So, like, I don't really understand, like, like, 
that like that is like the obvious expectation here of like right. even if she was abducted like you're not going to be like oh yeah by the way like my pin is you know whatever so right. like, <laughs> like it's like what's your pin number <laughs> yeah right exactly and then they only take out 60 bucks like you know what That's I mean so crazy. yeah so it just like so it, it does feel like at this point anyways in the end in the investigation like spoiler alert like this is about to change big time but like you know it oh, does feel yeah. at this point in the investigation that like she probably did take all this money and run because who else right. would be able to do that yeah but like why that's exactly like, why would she would do think. that yeah why yeah I, I, well i mean right and like if not for the fact that like her parents are like yeah no no shot that she did that like no chance like that's not like suzanne like she would right. like she's way more responsible with that she's and like also too like if you're gonna like if you're gonna take the money and run like why take out not why not take out the whole the full 120 bucks like nothing's stopping you from doing that like you know what i mean so that right. just doesn't ugh, it doesn't feel right like i'm like getting red like in case you couldn't tell but like i like because <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense like it, it feel it, like this part of the of the thing is just so strange and like really should be i mean is fairly you know setting off all the alarm bells yeah it kind of sets off an alarm bell for me for her her boyfriend in a way Mm. because like he could be the one that knows the pin because she probably trusts him Mm. naively because she's probably young right i would say she's 18 19 19 yeah well you want to get there let's talk about that yeah let's go taylor (laughs) so but uh, you know um all of this you know is pointing to somebody who knew suzanne probably better than anybody else and that person was Richard Condon, Suzanne's boyfriend. What does Richard tell the police? Well, Richard says that the night Suzanne went missing, he was waiting for her to call or email, as we said. But he was also playing video games online with a friend who backed that story up. Police ask him, you know, the normal questions about the investigation. Was anything off about Suzanne? Did she have any enemies? How was their relationship? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he answered all of those pretty normally. Nothing out of the ordinary at all. But then police bring up those ATM transactions and ask if Richard knew of anyone besides Suzanne who knew her ATM pin. And Richard says that he's pretty sure the only people who knew that number was Suzanne and him. Oh, he just threw himself under the bus. Yeah, well, a little bit. I mean, right, so, like, that's, I mean, that's where my brain goes of, like, okay, well, obviously, that doesn't do any favors, but also, like, if you knew you did something, like, why would mm-hmm. you say, oh, by the way, like, I'm the only other person on Earth who knows her pin? Like, yeah. uh, like, especially, like, if, if again, if he's involved, if he's the person taking out the money, like, why would he say that? Like, I would deny it to, the, to my freaking deathbed that I knew her pin. Right. Well, I mean, yes, maybe, maybe he's trying to be honest, though, yeah. or truthful. Well, or or guilt, he did guilty conscience, yeah. Yeah, right. he's trying to cover it up. Who knows, you know, mm. at this point. You know, this is the final outcome of this whole thing. He's the only other person on Earth that knows our pen. And by the way, there's $60 missing. And, like, you're probably the only other person, too, who knows that she only takes out $20 at a time. Right. Yeah, well, so this obviously created a really huge side eye for investigators. And so police start asking Suzanne's friends and family about Richard and Suzanne's relationship. And they say that they had a pretty abnormal one, actually. Richard had apparently become really controlling of Suzanne and really wanted to spend as much time with her as possible. Suzanne had also recently um, tried to break up with him a few times, and he would always get really emotional about it and insist that she take him back, and she would always cave, and they would end up getting back together. Richard also had apparently helped Suzanne set up her computer, which gave him remote access to it, including her passwords, login information, etc., etc., etc. And Richard 
says that Suzanne also had access to his computer, too, in fairness. But after that first interaction, whether Richard caught on to police's assumptions or what have you, Richard apparently lawyered up and refused to answer any more questions without his lawyer there. He has a hand in this somewhere. Uh, Well, and I go two different directions on that point, because, like, it could be, right, guilty, 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 or it could be, like, oh, my God, I'm really innocent and I said too much. You know what I mean? Like, I could see it. I could really see it going go With him having a history of being controlling, it's like, I can't help but think he... He did something to try and control her, and it ended up backfiring, and now he's yeah. having to cover his butt, you know? Yeah, and it also makes me wonder, like, if Suzanne even knew that he had access to his to her computer, if, he, right. if she knew that he had access to her, you know, ATM number and stuff. Yeah, like, it makes you wonder. It does. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess, again, I could go either way at this point. Um, But, you know, Richard is not making himself look good at this point. But there is no real evidence against him. Like, very circumstantial, right? Like, yes, he's the only other known person with access to Suzanne's ATM card. Okay. But, again, so circumstantial. And that alibi is pretty flimsy, too. Because the friend that he was playing video games with wasn't actually in the room with him, right? Like, they were playing online. And there are actually some really intriguing theories online poking some holes in this alibi. And so I really want you all to go look this up online because I won't be going into too much detail about it, um, you know, yes. but write into us. Tell us what you think about it. But some, you know, of those theories suggest that this friend alluded to some inconsistencies in Richard's gameplay. And again, to be clear, I'm not a gamer, but um, I'll probably explain this, you know, really horribly. But the theories, which are, again, just theories, suggest that Richard wasn't playing as he normally does that night. Like, I guess this friend suggested that his usual strategies or movements of some kind on this game weren't usually, you know, what he would do in that game. I don't know. Again, this is probably totally left field, but those theories are out there enough for me to bring them to you all and for you all to decide how much stake you're going to put in them for for yourselves. So again, write into us. Tell us what you think about that. I definitely want to look into that. Yeah, I like again. I don't know enough about it, but like there, like again, like there are some really long Reddit threads out there um, that oh, I was reading yeah. through, and I was like, okay, like I can't just like not talk about this, but I also don't know how to talk about this. So again, read it for yourselves. <laughs> go find it for yourselves. Tell us what you think, because there's no like real stake into it. It's just like a bunch of online sleuths, but you know the detail mm. is like like a little maddening because I'm like you guys are just doing this, but like <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's all very strange. So again, read it for yourselves. So regardless of what you think of this alibi, Richard has never been charged with anything again, even to this day, actually. So police need to chase down some actual leads here. And that brings us back to that now infamous ATM. Okay, Taylor, how's everything going your way, wine-wise? I am really feeling <laughs> she's like, she said, "How is it going?" Um, empty. That's how it's going. I need another glass. Empty. Yeah. Oh man, that's that's the story. We'll do that you know, to you. I should just turn the bottle up at this point. <laughs> Drink straight out of the bottle. I do need that much <laughs> wine to understand what the heck is going on in this story. Honestly. And I am really enjoying this wine. I'll say that. I am too. And I will say to you, <laughs> I think the best pairing along with it is watermelon sour patch kids because I'm I've been chomping on those too. Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, watermelon sour patch kids goes with everything, so it sure does. Yeah. It warms my right, heart exactly. to know that you love them that much now. Yeah, because well, of me. <laughs> okay, the, okay. To be clear, I did love them before I met you, but like you, like they they created some bonds. They created bonds and memories. <laughs> true, true. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. Although, <laughs> if like they want to, like give us the cash. I mean. Like, 
come this way. Hey, <laughs> I will take it. a lifetime supply of watermelon sour patch kids any day of the week. And Taylor, I'll be Amen. able to pay you back on all the ones I've stolen from you. So the good news. Absolutely. All right. Sure. Let's get back to Suzanne's story because man, ooh, we're in it. We're in that we're in it right now. So you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So talking about those ATMs, to be clear, these three transactions were made on three separate ATMs, like we were talking about, but police hone in on one particular transaction. It was made at a nearby Stewart store. And they look at that transaction specifically because the store has security video of the inside of the store. And so obviously like easy target, right? Now, unfortunately, the security camera isn't pointed directly at the ATM but instead at the cash register. But they get enough of of a view of the entire store to be able to see who's inside the store at the time of this of this um, transaction. And they notice that there is only one person in the store when that transaction was made. It's this man who was seen wearing a Nike ball cap. And that is pretty much like the extent, in fact, the entire description of that of this man that the police end up releasing. Oh man. So they're thinking it's someone else. But like what if it was her? Like, what if she was dressed up and, like, tried to disguise herself as a man? I guess it's possible. Like, they do, they definitely describe it as a man. Like, you describe it as an unknown man. So I think... I feel like the way that it describes it, I feel pretty confident saying that they don't think that it was her. Um, so right. I, you know, but again, the, but they never released the description of this man or, the, um, excuse me, the identity of this man. So we don't really know, like, who the heck this man is, I guess. Right. So I want to, I want to see that footage. It's probably really old, but it's, it's horrible. You're not going to, you're, you're not going to get anything out of this, but you asked for it. So well, maybe it'll give me an idea. Yeah, you're going to be able to solve it. Okay. I think I see I think I see the guy in the Nike. Kinda like and like. But how do you know that's Nike? How do you know that's I'm Nike? I'm sure they have a. I'm sure police have like a better like shot of it. Well, then how are they able to like? How are they able to get anything out of it? So if- police are apparently able to identify this man somehow, but they never release his identity. They are, however, somehow able to rule him out as a person of interest. But how? how- I need to yeah. know how. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm here's here's my thought because there because you saw that first clip of like the outside of the of the store, so like maybe. Got yeah. to a car with like a with a license plate. I don't know how they're able to rule him out mm-hmm. as a person of interest. I'm assuming they gave some sort of like backed up alibi or something. But like if maybe the it was times, just a weird coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The times yeah. line up. It's like you've got to do something about that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know because like I don't know. I. I mean, I, the only thing I can think of is that if somebody was somehow able to get into the store unseen by cameras, right? Make this withdrawal. Or, or here's another thought from that I just had, literally just now, um, is what if someone's just really good at computers and is somehow able to hack the ATM and, and make the withdrawal that way? Richard. Oh. <laughs> he might be. But, I mean, just a thought. But also, I mean. I don't think that's likely, 1996. Because no. actually, be well, because then they would have had to take out the cash. And so yeah, that doesn't make not, any sense to me. Okay, I withdraw no that. I withdraw we that. We withdraw. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What in the world? The surveillance video never really uncovers any more additional clues for police, and after a few months, the case seems to get pretty cold. That is, until spring comes around. It's May in upstate New York, and that means the month's worth of snow that is built up has finally melted, and so has this cold case. And so, once that snow is gone, the secrets it's been concealing can finally be revealed. 
Somehow, Suzanne's name tag is uncovered near where her dorm was. Now, it's been two months at this point, so it's really worn and weathered, so police can't really do much to pull any DNA or run any, run any tests that would prove produce any real results, but they can tell that it did and ble- indeed belong to her. Oh my gosh. I'm in shock. I didn't expect that, I guess. I didn't expect them to find something. I didn't realize yeah. I'm from the South, so I didn't realize yeah. that <laughs> that the snow could conceal something like that. Oh, girly pop, let me just tell you something because <laughs> you know I'm from New York. Like it, like we're talking about May, like it, like it, like the snow's still on the ground up until that point, especially in Albany. And so, yeah, like like anything that's under there is under there, not seeing the light of the day until at least May. That so. is just crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah, well, and like, listen, I have a lot of questions about this freaking name tag, and so do a lot of people. There are some people who question the placement. It was near the dorm and that bus stop, but not exactly along the path that she would have had to have taken from the bus stop to her dorm room. And police said they couldn't exactly determine how long it had been there either. Also, some people question whether she would have even been wearing that name tag that night. And I never really saw any anything in my research for this episode as to exactly why that would have been the case, but the only explanation I could, like, even think of is maybe it was a name tag for her other part-time job that she was working. Like, I don't know, just just my thought. Totally okay, so, wait, but just okay. kind of what I, what I thought of. So, the, did they say specifically where the name tag's from again? I don't think so. Again, so like, there's very, like, like a lot of details, but very few details about this name tag. Like, I think the only thing I can think of is that maybe it just said her name, but, like, normally name tags, like, say, like, the company or whatever... So I don't know. Mm. I could be totally wrong about this. Like this is just. What if it's I, just like, another Suzanne? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. I guess. Good point. I mean, they wouldn't be able to I mean, find yeah, out. I guess the only way you because right. So she was coming home from a job, right? Yeah. One of her. Mm-hmm. She has two jobs. She's coming home. She from has two part-time jobs. One of her jobs, and now they're mm-hmm. finding a name tag near the bus stop and near her dorm. But yeah. they. But. Were there security cameras to show no. if she got off the bus? Yeah. Okay, so they... Yeah, no, so the only reason... It. So there was one witness who said that they saw her get off of the bus, um, but, like... Uh, like kind of just kind of just weird like 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 that's the only reason that we're that we're believing that she actually got off yeah. the bus yeah. you know so yeah like listen like again i have so much questions about this but like <laughs> either way people point to this as an obvious as obvious evidence of some kind of struggle right there but i have to say i'm not totally convinced of that and let me tell you why taylor so you know definitely grab a sip of wine because you're gonna need it while i'm talking about this again you know this name tag is really oddly placed out of her usual path and keep in mind this was at about 10 o'clock at night on a random weekday on a college campus and i just can't imagine that there was enough of a struggle for her name tag to come off without anyone seeing it and like bold too right like you're in the middle of this college campus and you're going to attack a 19 year old girl and expect that no one is going to be around to hear her scream out for help so yeah that just doesn't fully sit right with me 100 percent. well if you don't think that's true how do you explain that well the other part that doesn't sit well with me about this name tag is the fact that it sat there for two months without anyone finding it especially police said that they had searched about 400 hundred acres around campus at this point but 
like you missed her name tag that was right where you last knew her to be? Like, sure, they said it was concealed by snow, but how did this name tag find itself buried underneath all of that snow? Right? Like you would have you would you would have noticed an impression of some kind, and that would be some sort of alarm bell going off to search that spot. Like, yeah, it was a couple of days after Suzanne went missing when police actually started searching for her. And even in March, it snows like every other day in upstate New York. So maybe it snowed more and covered up any trace of it. But I'm not totally buying that. Like, this doesn't feel right, Hunter. Like, and my guy, that does not feel right. So here's my theory about this freaking name tag. I believe that the much more logical explanation is that the name tag was placed there after whatever happened to Suzanne happened to her. Whoever was responsible for what happened to Suzanne probably went back to that scene sometime later and buried it under the snow for it to be revealed months later. And that would explain why there are some questions about whether this was the actual name tag that she would have been wearing that night. Like, maybe she had it in her bag or and or something, and our suspect took it and placed there, assuming that, you know, this was probably the right one to throw police mm, off, right? Yeah. I mean, that's so... What do you think? <sighs> it's just weird. Yeah. I mean, I know nothing about snow. You're from New York, so you know, (laughs) but for me, like, I I guess I I can see where you're coming from. I can see that um, it could have been, you know, I guess staged or put there, but also how would someone do that without being seen by someone? If, right. If there was a witness that night to see her get off the bus, it's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. A college campus is always kind of hopping. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess if I was just, like, walking along and just saw someone, like, messing around the snow, like, maybe I would be like, oh, that's weird. But, like, it wouldn't really catch me off. I don't know. But I would also imagine at this point, like, you know, this girl goes missing, like, like college students probably on edge. So, like, probably everything kind of stands out, too. Mm. So I guess I can kind of see that, you know, that playing into your argument, but... Nothing else really makes sense to me otherwise. Yeah, man, I don't know what to think. Yeah, me neither. And, you know, the investigation into Suzanne's disappearance is still wide open, even to this day. Richard ended up moving on, and as recently as 2010, his mother told reporters that he has gotten married, but police have not ruled out his potential involvement, according to ABC News. But police still need more leads to figure out the person who is definitively responsible for her disappearance. And even after all of these years, I know that there is a chance those leads are still out there somewhere, just waiting to connect the dots. So if you know anything about Suzanne Lyle's disappearance, call the New York State Police at 518-783-3212 or your local FBI field office. And we're also going to put both of those numbers in our show notes and on our website. So is that it? Oh, no, Taylor, that is so not it, because there are some crazy theories about the, out there about what may or may not have happened to Suzanne, and one of them involves a name that I know you all know. There are a few theories that police or online sleuths have come up with to determine the person responsible for Suzanne's disappearance. The first I want to tell you about is a man by the name of John Reagan. John was arrested in 2005 for trying to abduct a girl at Ballston Springs High School, which you may remember is where Suzanne graduated from. This brought some obvious connections to Suzanne's disappearance, and so police questioned John about Suzanne, but he never gives them anything real to go off of, and so John was eventually deemed a person of interest, but there was never any evidence found to definitively link him to Suzanne in any sort of way. Oh my goodness. 
I mean, it's an option, but I just, okay. I guess I need to understand how close this high, her high school was to her college. Oh, it was like 45 minutes away, not far at all. Okay. But like still like the the connection there. I mean, at the very least that's a, that's a that's an avenue for police to go down, right? Yeah. Like, you know, uh, you know, if 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 it doesn't pan out, which it doesn't sound like it did, yeah. you know, that's something that's like a place to go because clearly he's interested in girls from from Boston Springs. Right, or so. girls in general. Nasty. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, but like if he's hanging out or on Mm-hmm. on Boston Springs, you know, abducting little girls. So he might know who she you is, know. you know. He might know who she is, mm-hmm. right, exactly, and been, like, look, and been looking at her for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the second theory that we're going to talk about here actually came from the early days of the investigation and may actually, now that I think about it, tie into this John theory. A co-worker of Suzanne's told police that Suzanne told her about a month before she went missing that she had this weird feeling that she just couldn't shake, that she was being followed by a man that she didn't know. Now, this co-worker tells police that Suzanne didn't really seem frightened or really concerned about this at all. You know, you know, she didn't, like, I guess didn't get weird vibes, you know, or dangerous vibes, I suppose, but she never was really able to identify him for certain either. But if this is true, that would make a good amount of sense, right? I mean, that would explain how the person who took her ATM card knew so much about her habits and her patterns enough to attack her without a trace and to use her ATM card in a way that may seem like it was actually her. So she could have a stalker. Well, but like, it, I, I guess it like it does kind of make sense to me, I suppose. Yeah. Like, because again, like if, if if you're following someone for long enough, you kind of figure out like, okay, like yes, yeah, she only takes out twenty dollars at a time. Like, I can I can you know look over her shoulder at one point and like figure out her ATM number. And mm. like you know, I also know that that she when she goes to work at this time, like she you know gets up at this stop and that kind of thing. Yeah, but also like how trusted is this coworker's word? You know, is it just mm. hearsay at this point? You know, like. I mean, probably a little bit of both. Mm. Yeah, it could be a little bit of both. I mean, I think, it, I mean, it definitely is here saying like, he, like they couldn't go arrest somebody about this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just off of this one single, you know, thing. So like, it's definitely not like usable in evidence, but definitely like, you know, again, an avenue to go down, mm. you know, cause, and, and if she, and if she did have these kind of feelings like early on, like, you know, I guess it, like that would make sense, right? If somebody who is, who, who's missing, like all of a sudden, like, you know, the, 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 the dots that are connected are, by the way, like she said that she may have had a stalker, mm. you know, maybe not, but like still like that, that's, that's an avenue, to, yeah. an avenue to go down. You'd think point. that she'd say, she'd tell her parents cause she trusts them so yeah. much or her boyfriend that she felt this way. Yeah. And I uh, like her parents said that they knew nothing about this, you know, stalker. Like they never, like Suzanne never told them about this. So this is like, you know, yeah. news to her. So maybe it was more so just like a kind of, cause again, if she didn't seem frightened about it, like maybe it was more so just like a, that's weird. Like, you, you see that guy? Like, I feel like, I don't know. Like, again, maybe just right. more so like a gut feeling as opposed to. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, right. So that, that's kind of, that's about, a, about a, as much stake as into that I put. Mm. But this last theory is one that I have particularly a lot to discuss about. So, like, how full is your glass, Taylor? Because we have a lot to talk about. I've got plenty. <laughs> okay, I think we're good. This theory ties Suzanne's disappearance back to a serial killer. And his name is Israel Keys. Okay. I don't know Israel, but I want to know. 
what okay. he's well, known for. <laughs> real, like, true, true crime fans are absolutely going to know Israel Keys' name. Right. And so, you know, maybe if, you, if you're like, Taylor, you're just trying to figure out who Israel Keys is, let me tell you Please. about Israel Keys. So Israel's story and the victims that he preyed upon really need an episode of their own. But I'll sum it up for you right here. So Israel Keys was connected to the deaths of at least three different people from across the United States. He was known to have traveled across the country and commit heinous murders in seemingly random cities and keep caches of weapons across the country in order to commit those crimes. But at one point, Israel lived in Constable, New York, about three hours north of Albany. Now, Israel was eventually arrested and confessed to those three murders that I told you about, but based upon his notes he took, police believe he is connected to at least 11 people's deaths across the United States. Israel died in prison in 2012, but the investigations into people police believe he may have killed continue to this day. Now, here's how it relates to Suzanne Lyle. For starters, the podcast True Crime Bullshit reported that Suzanne's name was found on a list on his computer, among other missing people across the country. On top of that, as part of this investigation, police started mapping out his known travels, and police found that in July of 1998 through July of 2001, Israel was in the army and was stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington. But Israel was processed out of Albany, New York, in July of 1998, just four months after Suzanne went missing. Oh my goodness. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it feels like the, like, like everything's kind of lining up at this point. Like everything kind of makes a good amount of sense. Yeah, the so. fact that they found her name mm-hmm. in a list on his computer. Whoa. Yeah. And like, you know, I could, you know, again, just to like give him the benefit of the doubt, I guess, because like if that feels weird, like saying that about his jokes, <laughs> but like, let's do that. Like, you know, like, it, like it could just be like, like an obsession of his, you know what I mean? Like maybe he just like, like saw the amount of attention that she was getting and was like, oh, like, like I need to know more about this girl. True. You know, because that's kind of the sicko that he was. But like, I don't know. I just don't know what to, like, how much stake to put into this and how much to just kind of like put it up to just like, you know, you can't really, you know, look too much into these actions because it could mean one thing to like a sane minded person, but like a totally different thing to somebody else. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But there is one other thing that connects him to Suzanne. So let's get there, Taylor. Mm. Police believe that Israel may have actually frequented the Crossgates Mall, where Suzanne worked. Police spoke to multiple women who identified Israel Keys as a man who approached them in the mall in 1998 and would ask them all sorts of personal questions, like their age, marriage, status, etc., until either he would lose interest and walk away, or the women would get bad feelings about him and just leave by themselves. Oh my gosh, bad feelings that makes me think he was stalking her. Well, I mean, that would make sense, right? Especially because, again, like, she worked at the mall, so, like, maybe, you know, this guy was kind of just, like, eyeing her, you know, maybe approached her at one point, and, you know, this was the day when she was like, hey, by the way, I think there's some, some guy watching me. It would make sense. All I'm saying is that it would make sense. Yep. So. That does make sense. I don't know. What do you think about Israel Key's, you know, theory? I think that's a solid one. Mm -hmm. Especially if he was in the area. At around mm-hmm. that time, which it seems mm-hmm. like he was. I mean, I would like to yeah. dig deeper and find out exactly where he was in March of 1998. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, he was obviously there in July, but he could have been there before, you know? 
Yeah. Well, and there's like a whole like, and I'll send a link to it too, and we're gonna link to it on our website as well. But there's like a whole like um like again timeline that the FBI kind of mapped out about him, and so there are like holes, you know, where like you know there are like months at a time where there's like not 100 percent sure where he was. Um, but again, you know, the fact that he was from that area, like it all kind of ma- kind of kind of lined up, and like he did kind of fit his mo, like in a weird way. He like kills a lot of older women, but like also killed some younger women too, and a lot of the women that they believe that he was involved in. Um, you know, in in killing, you know, um, were never found, and so that makes sense. You know, and he he really like when he was being interrogated too. Like, there, it's a fascinating thing. Like, you have to go. Like, I need a full Netflix docu series. Oh, I'm sure there is. Like, in fact, immediately, I'm sure there's an Israel. We need one. to do a podcast, or you need to do a podcast on him. Oh, now. we'll bring you back on to do an Israel Keys episode. Don't worry about oh, that, Taylor. <laughs> so he he was he was out there. Like he was like I mean, obviously he killed at least you know he killed at least three people. Um, you know, believed to kill a lot more you know and like was like really like i hate to say this but like really skilled at like you know evading police for so long so mm-hmm. so and again Ooh. it could all just be the weird sicko interest of like you know i love missing women like let me just like see what's going on like he gets off on that somehow but it could also be that he killed her yeah as for mary and doug they became fierce advocates for their daughter's investigation and for college students everywhere to make sure that no parent ever has to experience their pain. In 2001, Mary and Doug founded the Center for Hope, a nonprofit that provides resources for families of missing persons. They also push for Suzanne's Law, which requires colleges and universities nationally to be more prepared for similar emergencies and to report missing person cases sooner, requiring missing people 23 and younger to be reported immediately, whereas as before, that was only required for minors. Suzanne's parents were also instrumental in creating the Cold Case Playing Card Program in New York, which prints faces of missing people or unsolved cases on decks of playing cards, which are then distributed in state prisons with the hope of creating leads from inside prisons on those cases, or even guilting the person responsible into coming forward, and those programs are in jails across the country at this point. Lastly, Taylor, do you know those emergency blue lights that are on just about every college campus these days? Yeah. Well, Mary and Doug actually started that program. They pushed for that to be the standard on college campuses across the country to provide the security and safety students should feel on their college campuses. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm so glad they did that. Well, and like, too, like, like to tur- like talk about turning this into a good thing, I mean weird to say that but like it's true right like you know talking about like you know about you know taking like again like the worst thing i'm sure that they've ever had to go through um and like turning it into something that like you know remotely positive like that like this is the best example of that i've ever i've ever seen so mm-hmm, yeah for sure. well unfortunately though mary is now fighting this battle to close suzanne's case alone Doug died in 2015, but even though most days are hard for her, she is still determined to find out what happened to her daughter. 25 years later, and Suzanne's case has been assigned to probably dozens of investigators, and each time, Mary says she befriends that cop and stays in touch with them for updates, and she even said that she ended up attending some of their weddings and retirement parties, according to ABC News. She still lives in Suzanne's childhood home, and you hear about this all of the time, that parents of missing people have a hard time leaving the home they lived in at the time of their children's disappearance, because what if they're being held captive somewhere, but are able to break free? You want to be in the home that they know and love, just in case. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, Wow. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Ugh. 
heartbreaking. I don't know. It's just, I just picture this like older woman just like sitting at home in her little sofa, in her little sofa chair, like just waiting for Suzanne to come home. Like, ugh. I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. I need a drink. I don't know. Well, cheers to Suzanne. Cheers to Suzanne, man. And, and, and Mary. And found one day. Yeah. And Mary. I, yeah. And Doug. Yeah, seriously. Well, again, I say if you know anything, and I do mean anything, about Suzanne Lyle's disappearance, call the New York State Police at 518-783-3212 or your local FBI field office. But in the meantime, Taylor, that is pretty much all that we have for you this week. So thank you so much for coming on. Wow, that was a story. Right? Oh my goodness. I'm just going to be like in a hole trying to figure things out from now on. I'm going to be on Reddit for the rest of my day. <laughs> well, now you know how I've been for the past like, you know, two weeks while I've been researching this case. Like, it's, oh I've been goodness. like really in on it. Man, I definitely want to know more. I oh. hope we find out more. Me too. Well, yeah, there are a ton of documentaries about, you know, ton, like every po- every true crime podcast in the world is in a story on Suzanne Lyle. So if you need that itch to scratch, like there are a lot of avenues for you to do that, you know, in the true crime world. Well, thank you again so much for coming on, Taylor. And thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too. And if you are just loving this podcast and are just wondering how you can tell anyone and everyone about it, the best way to help others discover this podcast is by leaving us a review and a rating wherever you are listening right now. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.